Welcome back, Ford Explorers. Before we get into this week's episode, we want to remind you that we have Instagram, we have Patreon, we have Twitter, and most importantly, we have our hotline. Typically, we tell you a story, but we want you to tell us a story. So call us or text us to the hotline and enjoy this week's episode. See you guys. And welcome back, Ford Explorers. I'm the Colonel. This is my son, Caleb. Hopefully you guys are well. This is the Acid Cat Spirit Hour, as I'm sure you're probably acquainted. Unless this is your first time joining us, in which case, welcome. Feel free to like and subscribe if you're on YouTube or follow us wherever else you're at. We appreciate the support and feel free to share. We're happy to have you. Uh, for those who don't know, we like to start the podcast before we get into the main story. We like to start, I own a little haunted bar and Caleb works at that little haunted bar and we had a, a pretty fun uh, experience this week, but every week we do what we call the ghost report. So, Caleb, why don't you give them this week's ghost report? Yeah, so like normal, the lights went crazy, and uh, I would see things out of the corner of my eyes. But the big one this week uh, happened two days ago. It was towards the end of the shift. We were about to close up, and there were three people sitting at the bar. And they were already, like, they had been there for a while, so they'd been drinking. So they were already kind of a little weird. But one guy was just sitting at uh, a booth, and the stool right next to him just falls over and it hits the ground and I go around and I pick and it up. To be clear, they're like heavy stools. Yeah, they're they're very top heavy. Um, so it falls over and I pick it up and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't even notice I touched it. Like, I'm super sorry. And I was like, no, it happens. They're very top heavy. They'll tip over, whatever. And the girl that was in his group goes, yeah, man, you don't even have to apologize. It wasn't even your fault. It was the girl sitting in that chair. Oh... And I just completely ignored it. I'm like, I'm just going to get through the shift. <laughs> like, I'm just going to ignore this. She be said clear that. To everybody, the bar was empty. Yeah, it was just the three. It was two dudes and a girl. It was just the three of them in there. And so for her to be like, yeah, it was the girl sitting behind you. I'm like, dope. Anyways, this last call. You guys can close so I can get the fuck out of here. This ghost girlfriend's coming for me. That's a good one this week. We don't, you know, sometimes it's just the lights or whatever. I wonder if it was the lady with the long hair. You think it was the lady I, with the long it's hair? It's gotta be. Yeah. Yeah, it must be. It's, man, that is spooky though. Especially for somebody, you know, that's an intimate group of friends. Yeah. There's no, if you don't know that person, you don't know them. You know? Yeah. I like, to, I like the idea that she bellies up to the bar though. Just slowly figuring it out. She's like, I like this place. Or maybe we've got a new ghost. Who knows? Well, we've had a couple instances. I I've talked about them before where people were sitting there and they like swear that they saw someone walk past them yeah. or felt someone walk past them in the front section of the bar. So to hear, oh, well, it wasn't you. It was the girl sitting behind you when you're the only three people in the bar. Yeah. It's a little unnerving. That's very spooky. That's spooky. You should have told them. It probably would have scared them right on out of the building, but you should have <laughs> told them. It would have been fantastic. All right. Well, uh, fantastic goat. Goat report is apparently what I'm going to call that now. Great. That's the goat ghost report, probably so far. It's the best one we've had. It is a good one. Yeah. Uh, so today we're getting back into the spooky stuff a little bit. You know, we, the show's known to kind of traverse all of the curiosities of life. You know, one of the, I don't know, probably more popular tropes that exists in the world, whether it's in a, uh, like a mobile game ad or in a cautionary tale for children, is the like killer old woman. 
Baba but, Yaga. Yeah, Baba. Well, Baba Yaga is slightly different, right? But yeah, the the idea that there's like this wicked witch or mm. like this old woman who's going to, I don't know, bring you into her house because it's made out of gingerbread and candy or eat you or whatever. Well, today we're talking about a true story that involves a true wicked witch, I guess you could call her, uh, a woman, an older woman who did exactly that. Her name was Dorothea Puente. Well, her name was a number of different things, but today we're going to talk about Dorothea Puente specifically. She was born Dorothea Helen Gray, but you'll get into that in a moment because we always start this by getting into the person. Uh, But yeah, so Dorothea did a lot of really vile things over the course of her life, but that includes being uh, charged with, but as we'll get into, maybe didn't commit a series of murders, Um, but before we get into any of the sort of vile behaviors she might have had, why don't you get into who Dorothea Gray was? Yeah, so Dorothea Gray uh, was born January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California to Trudy May and Jesse James Gray. Um, her upbringing was pretty traumatic. Her parents were both alcoholics and very uh, abusive, both physically and emotionally. Her father would uh, constantly repeat uh, threatening suicide in front of his family and uh, in 1937, he actually died from tuberculosis. And the year after, uh, their mother lost custody of her children. And then it, within the same year, died in a motorcycle accident. Oh, wow. Okay. So so all the kids then got put into an orphanage. And they lived into an orphanage until uh, Dorothea was 16, where she got married for the first time. Uh, so it was 1945. It was a soldier named uh, Fred McFowell had just returned from World War II. Okay. Uh, and they had two two daughters together, one born in 1946, one born in 1948. Um, she sent one of the children to live with relatives in Sacramento and placed the other one up for adoption. And then uh, she got pregnant again and suffered a miscarriage. And because of that miscarriage, uh, her husband actually left her in okay. 1948. Well, you know, miscarriages can be absolute hell on a yeah. relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Men have a tendency not to take them very seriously, and they are, you know, both physically and emotionally one of the most traumatic things a woman can go through. Yeah. Um, In spring of 1948, so after she gets a divorce, she gets arrested for purchasing uh, women's accessories using forged checks in Riverside, where she was born, and she was charged and pled guilty to two counts of forgery and served four months in jail and then three years probation. Um, And six months after her release, she ended up leaving Riverside. She. She didn't live in Riverside, California anymore. Up into 1952, where she married a merchant seaman named uh, Axel Bryn uh, Johansson in San Francisco. And when she married him, she started using this fake persona. She called herself Taya Singala uh, Nayarda and claimed to be a Muslim of Egyptian and Israeli descent. Which uh, you saw in the thumbnail, we used a picture of her, um, but I could, I suppose I could throw one up right here too. She's a very, very white lady. Yes. Yeah. Um, and their marriage was super turbulent, mainly because he was always uh, off at sea. He was, he was a sailor. And while he well, was. Yeah. <laughs> and while he was off sailing, she was pretending to be a different person. Yep. She was pretending to be a Taya and would frequently invite men to their home and gamble away her husband's money. Oh man, poker <laughs> night with the boys. So, he gets back from sea and uh divorces her as well. Oh well, yeah. Um, <laughs> no shit. <laughs> but in 1960 before they got a divorce, uh she was arrested once again for owning and operating a brothel 
under the guise of it being a bookkeeping firm in yeah. Sacramento. Yeah, in Sacramento, uh, she had uh, become a prostitute, or I guess I should probably say allegedly on that one, um, but she had allegedly become a prostitute, but then had become a madam, and that is true because she got arrested for it, mm-hmm. uh, and she actually got a charge of prostitution at the time. But with the way that we treat sex work, it's kind of hard to immediately. And also, there should be a thin layer of uh, understanding the time period here. When we say that she was writing bad checks, there's a lot of debate back and forth about whether or not um, uh, Dorothy did Dorothea did what she she was accused of doing all the way until the very end, um, and she insists that she wasn't a scammer and that she wasn't a murderer and that she didn't do anything wrong. Um, and throughout her life, she's had a number of other instances where it's very difficult. She always had a, a reasonable excuse, and we'll get into that a lot more, but I was thinking about those bad checks. And, you know, writing bad checks at that time, if she didn't have a husband, unfortunately, in her position, that might have been kind of the only thing she could do. Like yeah. If she didn't have money, she may have needed to invent money. Yeah. Yeah, so I only say that. We talked about this a little bit last week, but that was an alien abduction. But still, when you're talking about race in the 1960s, it's not dissimilar from gender in the yeah. 1960s. So I, I do understand why maybe she had a desire to just sort of change who she was. Yeah, plus as a, as a Muslim woman of Egyptian descent, <laughs> she probably got some, some flack for that too. Well, nobody was, nobody was, uh, yeah, nobody was flex, like flexing that stuff for clout just yeah. yet. Yeah, it was actually inconvenient back then. So uh, in 1961... Uh, Johansson actually briefly commits Dorothea uh, after she went on a, a binge of drinking, lying, criminal behavior, and threatening suicide. So it was while they were still married, he was like, hey, she's just kind of gone off the deep end. I, I want to get her committed. I don't feel like she's comfortable in her safety. I'm not comfortable in her safety. Sure. So he gets her ad- uh, admitted, and while she's there, the doctors diagnose her as a pathological liar with an unstable personality. I'll um, say so. Yeah. Uh, so, Gray and Johansson were married up until 1966, where uh, they end up getting divorced. But she does continue to use Johansson's name for some time following their separation and started a new identity, uh, calling herself Sharon Johansson, um, using that to hide her delinquent behavior of the past and portraying herself as a kind Christian woman. Yeah, there's a evolution of this woman over the course of her life where she like it's like she was learning slowly but surely to make herself look more and more disarming. Yeah. Yeah, like she went from being pretty straightforward kind of possible con woman bouncing bad checks and stuff to f- full on personification of like evil murder grandma. Uh she then started building up a reputation as a caregiver. Uh, providing young women with sanctuary from poverty and abuse without charging them. Which is a fantastic thing to do. And then in uh, two years later, 1968, uh, she married a man by the name of Roberto Jose uh, Puente, where she gets the last name Puente. And after 16 months, the couple separated uh, with Dorothea citing domestic abuse as the main cause. And in 1967, she attempted to serve him with a divorce uh, petition but he fled the country to Mexico without it being finalized. Okay. Um, the divorce wouldn't actually be finalized until 1973, and the two of them would still have this weird, turbulent relationship up until um, 1975 when she filed a restraining order against him. But she would continue to use the last name Puente for more than 20 years. Wow. Yeah, so being like married for 16 months, being like, hey, he's abusing me, I don't want him around anymore, tries to divorce him. 
he flees the country, and then when it's still not finalized, just being like, "Hey, I want I want a restraining order against him," and then they're like, "Fine, you guys can get a divorce," and she's like, "Cool." I'm still going to go by Puente, though. I hope that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know what's interesting, too, is this was in a time period where people like to say that, you know, like the Ben Shapiro's of the world like to say that, well, the modern world is more toxic and there's more divorces now. Well, divorce wasn't legal for people in a normal-ass marriage until the mid-'70s for irre- irreconcilable differences. Yeah. You used to not be able to get divorced unless you had, like, a real reason. Yeah, that's like it's being like, oh, well, there's more divorces now. Yeah, there's also more car crashes now than there were in the 1800s. Like, yeah, there's yes. just... More cars. It's easier to get in a car crash. More car- there are Yeah, there are more cars than there were in the 1800s and that there are cars now. Exactly. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. So when you look at 150 years, well, I know that's not as long as this is, but even if you look at 150 years ago and been like, well, there are nearly, not nearly enough divorces back then. Yeah, it's because it was nearly impossible to do. Yeah, there were a lot of people who were trapped in dead-end marriages that they hated too. So after she gets divorced... Uh, she focuses on running a boarding house that was located at the corner of 21st and F Street in Sacramento. Uh, the address, you can find it online. I believe it's 1426 F Street. Yeah, it's going to come up a lot today. Uh, it It's still there, we should point out, because it's a historical building. That's one of the fun things about these sorts of cases that happen in older cities. It happens in Chicago a lot. Mm-hmm. But in her case, they're, I mean, they can't take that house down. They can't tear it down. It's a historical building. It's from the 1890s. So... The kind of neat thing for people like us is that it's always going to be there. If you guys uh, live in Sacramento or anywhere near, if you live in Fresno, unfortunately, I'm just trying to pick the, that's probably the people who listen to our podcast, you know, people who live in like Fresno and stuff, meth, a meth den in Fresno has got this going. (laughs) So if you're there, go on up to Sacramento in 1463, right? 1426. 26. Sorry. The other way around. Yeah. F street. Um, So she established herself as a genuine resource to the community to uh, aid with alcoholics, uh, homeless people, and the mentally ill by holding AA meetings in this house, uh, assisting individuals to sign up to receive social security benefits, and also running it as a boarding house, saying like, hey, if you don't like being in a shelter or rehab or anything like that, you can come live here, and uh, I'll just take your social security check. (laughs) I like the idea that uh, she got popped for running a brothel, so she was like, okay, well, what's the next closest thing I can run? So, um... She like, not. She looked around the neighborhood her brothel was in and was like, huh, halfway house. <laughs> she, not only by going uh, to change her reputation, she also changed her physical appearance. Um, she changed her public image to that of a respectable older matron by wearing, uh, like, chiffon dresses, like vintage clothes, yeah, big, thick the, the grainy glasses. glasses. The glasses. The, again, you saw it in the... The thumbnail, but she's got these big, huge granny glasses, and she would claim to be a lot older than she was. When she was in her 40s, she'd ask people to call her grandma, mm-hmm. and it was specifically just to win people's trust. Yeah, and, and she would, like, dye her hair and then naturally let it turn gray as well. So she became, she looked much older in a very short time span. It's the, um oh, why can't I think of his name? The Andy Warhol approach to yeah. things. He used to uh, have white hair and dress himself in the same way because he said that if you look older when you're younger, you'll look younger when you're older. And I, you know, I get that. If you look the same way your whole life, it'll kind of make it all slow down at least. Mm. Like you'll still look old, but you won't look the same kind of old. Yeah. Uh, So she then established herself as a respected member in Sacramento's Hispanic community uh, by funding charities, scholarships, and radio programs. And through that, she met a man by the name of uh, Pedro Angel uh, Montalvo. And they 
got uh, really close, and they ended up getting married. And then he just abruptly left a week after they got married. Is, uh, did he leave the country to get divorced? Yeah, apparently. He just he just left, and no one really heard from him anymore. So as time goes on, it's now 1978, and she gets charged and convicted for illegally cashing 34 state and federal checks that belonged to her tenants at this wow. house. Wow. So uh, she it was an unlicensed care facility. Yeah, so it's sort of like when you take your uh, – this is probably more for me. Well, I don't know, probably for you too. When you grow up poor, there's usually like a person in the neighborhood who watches your kids. There isn't like a daycare. Yeah. And they always have to worry about like child services showing up because, yeah, it is technically illegal. Your kid's not in any danger, but it is technically illegal. And with this, this is uh, – I'm not going to say nobody was in danger because obviously we're going to get into lots of people were in a great yeah. deal of danger. <laughs> but that being said, you know, it's – I understand the desire. I think that the needs outweigh the um, solutions when it comes to homelessness and when it comes to um, – um, mental illness and, you know, a lot of the intense care that people need yeah. to, like, really take care of their quality of life. Yeah, I think that we come up short on a lot of that stuff. So in that sense, like, I can't blame a person. And what's super fucked up about this woman is that, by and large, what she was doing was so good because that's what she was using as a shield. Yeah. And it's just so dark because we... Everywhere there's a charity is a sign of a fundamental breakdown in society. Now, I, you know, you and I don't worry about political compass too much, but what I don't celebrate is cruelty and uh, cruelty to others. I don't think that we are a better place if some people suffer in the favor of some people succeeding, regardless of any sort of judgment calls you want to make about character. I think the only way your nation is truly flexing is if everybody is flexing. Yeah. If everybody, like, it's like your family, man. If, like, you take care of your family and three members are doing great and one is a total fucking loser and can't get it together, like, if you're responsible for your family, you're responsible for trying to fix that. Yeah. So I think that there are a lot of holes, obviously, out there, right? Like, my grandmother. My grandmother started Meals on Wheels in Montana. She was a social worker. Like, there's a lot of social workers in my family. I know a lot of social workers. I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. But I also know, just like they know, that their jobs are very difficult. They're made more difficult every day by the the, the agency that controls them. And... Life is fucking hard. It's full of nuance. So I can't, I say all this just to say that while I know that what this woman was doing was terrible, I understand why she was popular with social workers. I understand why she was able to pull the wool over people's eyes because you go, well, why didn't they go to an official facility? Well, fucking you, okay, how do they do that? Where's yeah. the money come from? Where does any of that come from? And a lot of these people, like, people, you know, love to talk shit about homeless people. I've been a homeless person both both intentional and unintentionally, and I can tell you that for a lot of the people that are out there, it is an issue of mental illness, and it is an issue of substance abuse, and that's not something that telling somebody to get a fucking job and being a part of a broken system or going to a rescue or whatever is going to fix. Yeah. So operating off of the radar, I understand. You know, I, I can see why... Again, we're playing devil's advocate for a woman who doesn't need it. Yeah. But in the greater scheme of things, I don't want to demonize this level of charity just because this woman did something terrible. You shouldn't be afraid of this kind of charity. We shouldn't need it, yeah. but you shouldn't be afraid of seeking it. Well, uh, to your point of that I've gotten to get to know this guy. He lives around the bar, and I see him almost every day. And every time I see him, he's like, hey, man, how you doing? Do you have anything you, you can give to help me out today? And, like, I'll buy him coffee and food and give him cash and stuff. And I got to sit down and talk to him. And he's like, yeah, man, I'm, like, severely schizophrenic. And I own the money that I make. He's like, I have a job. But the money that I make goes towards buying my meds. Yeah. And I can't buy my meds and rent. So he's like, 
I have to be I have to be homeless so I can be sane. Yeah, yeah, and that's the way it is for a lot of people. Like uh, we've talked about it a little bit before, but I have a cousin, a, a dear, dear. Uh, it's so weird to say like friend when you're talking about your family because they're your family. That's somebody, a family member who means a tremendous amount to me, and he is a paranoid, delusional, schizophrenic. He requires medication, and he still requires care. And, like, there's nothing wrong with him at all. He's a beautiful human being. He's one of the greatest you'll ever meet. He's incredibly artistic. He's incredibly kind. But if he didn't have my aunt looking out for him and everybody else, he could get himself in some very serious trouble, and he has. And it's only because he is in a situation where he needs the help of his neighbors, Mm -hmm. and there are so many neighbors who don't want to help. Yeah, they want to leave him to figure it out on its own, on his own. And it's like, he would if he could, I assure yeah. you. Yeah, if he, could, if he could straighten this out, buddy, he would straighten it out. So it's now uh, April 1982. Uh, Dorothea is working part-time at a restaurant. Uh, it's, restaurant's a kind word. It's, it's uh, the kitchen of a bar that's on the corner. Yeah, so Dorothea did a lot of odd jobs. You know, she was a prostitute. She was a madam. She did make enough money to pay her bills. It, Not to bury the lead too much, but she was stealing those checks. So the deal that she was making with most of those guys was that they'd give her their social security check uh, in exchange for staying there. A lot of times that wasn't a lot of money. And this is the 80s. A social security check then was probably 60, 80 bucks a week. Um, But still, that's where a lot of her money was coming from. But she was working weird little odd jobs. She, You got to remember, she had been convicted of crimes. We're going to get into it here in just a minute. But at this point, she had also already gone to jail and been convicted, correct? Yeah, a couple of times. But, I mean, for specifically for knocking dudes out. Yeah. um, For meeting guys at the bar knocking them out yes. and stealing their shit. Yes. And she also did it. She also posed as a nurse and did it to a series, a number of other, which we'll get into, but she, she had a long list of crimes she was up to for sure. Sorry. Get back to what she was up to. So she was working in the kitchen of this corner bar. Uh, and she became close friends with one of the regulars. His name was Hector. And, uh, another person started coming in a 61 year old by the name of Ruth Monroe started coming in and got close with Hector. And Hector was like, oh, well, you're looking uh, to start a business. I have this friend that works in the kitchen here that wants to start a restaurant, meaning Dorothea. And he uh, linked the two of them together and was like, you guys should start a restaurant together. So they found a spot and they opened up this restaurant and Dorothea ran it and uh, Ruth kind of funded it. And every month, Dorothea would just be like, we're not making any money. You need to put more money into the business. And a month would go by, and she's like, we're still not making any more money. You need to you need to put money into it. Well, Ruth and Hector end up getting married, and Hector uh, gets diagnosed with cancer. And Ruth doesn't want to be alone while he's in treatment, so she moves in with Dorothea and goes broke. Like, they have to shut down the, the restaurant because... Dorothea's like, we're still not making any money. And Ruth's like, I have no more money to give. So they shut down the restaurant, and they're now living together. Well, Ruth is living in the upstairs apartment in Dorothea's house, and her son comes to visit one day and was like, "Uh, how is my mom? And Dorothea's like, oh, she's upstairs sleeping. She's not feeling well. Well, he goes up and, and, and visits with his mom, and she's laying in bed with her eyes open and crying. And he's like, hey, everything's going to be all right. Dorothea's going to take care of you. You're living here now. It's going to be fine. Well, the next morning, he gets a call from his sister. Did you mention that it's because the restaurant closed? Yes. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, 
he gets a call from uh, his sister, and his sister says, Dorothea called me this morning and told me to come pick up mom's stuff. She passed away. And her stuff was one empty purse. It was an empty purse. Yeah, they go to pick up the empty purse, and Dorothea goes, oh, your mom gave me everything. She wanted you to have this purse. Including her chapstick. So she calls, uh, apparently, according to the police, the night before, Dorothea called them and said, my roommate committed suicide. Can someone come pick her up? Well, they did an autopsy and everything. Um, Ruth died of an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dorothea told the police that the woman was very very depressed because her husband was terminally ill. Like I said, he got diagnosed with cancer. And they fully believed her and ruled her death as a suicide and didn't look into it anymore. Sweet old woman. Yeah, sweet, sweet, old, sweet woman. old woman. Just her friend, you know, who had killed herself apparently after their restaurant closed. Mm-hmm. Um, a few weeks later, the cops would be showing back to Dorothea's house. But This is going to become a theme. They showed up because, as you mentioned, she had a little bit of a history of going to bars, picking up dudes, take, going home with them, drugging them, and robbing them blind. So 74-year-old uh, Malcolm McKenzie was at a bar, met Dorothea, took her home, and exactly that. Laid down on the couch because he wasn't feeling well. Next thing you know, he couldn't move. Had his eyes wide open. Yeah, he said he had two drinks. Mm-hmm. When they got back to his place, he was, like, paralyzed, but he could see her. And she took all of his shit. She just yep. ransacked his house and took his ring off his finger. Yep, came, took the ring off his finger, uh, and went home. And he. Do you think that's what Cardi B used to do when she talked about doing that shit? Probably. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a really cool, like, mini documentary online that you can find about... Uh, these women that do it in Brazil, yeah, and, and they'll they'll drug guys and they'll just those guys will be paralyzed and they'll take all their shit and leave. And this one reporter, like, knew that this lady was doing it and set up like hidden cameras and had people waiting on the balcony and put tent on the balcony window so you couldn't see out but you could see in. And she, like, pours glasses of wine and he's like, "Oh, I gotta use the bathroom." She full up just reaches into her purse, pours shit into his wine. Uh, and he comes back and he's like, all right, well, what are we going to do? And she's like, well, let's drink this wine and then we can go further. And he's like, I'm not drinking that. You know why, right? And she's like, no, why? And then the people just open up the balcony <laughs> door. And she's like, fuck, I'm going to jail. <laughs> but no. Uh, How to catch a predator in Brazil. So uh, Dorothea continues. Um, she continues to own this halfway house. So she accepts elderly boarders and is uh, popular with the local social workers because she takes on what they call uh, tough cases. Okay. So it'll be drug addicts, abusive tenants. Violent ones. uh, Violent ones, uh, people with schizophrenia or other uh, mental illnesses, just people that don't really last long in other situations. Absolutely. So she uh, would collect the tenants' monthly mail before they would even see it and pay them stipends and pocketing the rest for expenses. So their their checks would come in. They'd be eighty bucks. She'd give them ten and pocket the other seven. Yeah, well, and you know these are stipends for guys that don't really leave the house a whole lot. And mm-hmm. they if they do leave the house, they don't really leave the neighborhood. It's not like they're going on trips. These are old guys on disability checks. So during this period, parole agents would visit uh, Dorothea at least fifteen times. And even though she had been ordered to keep away from the elderly and wasn't allowed to take care of people. And wasn't allowed to handle government checks. Yeah, to be clear, as a when she got arrested for uh, drugging guys the first time, she goes to jail. When she was 
the terms of her probation or her parole, it wasn't probation, it's parole. That for those who don't know the difference, parole is basically you're supposed to be in jail right now. And probation is, ah, eh, what you did doesn't really deserve going to jail, but if you fuck up, you will go to jail. Yeah. One of them, you start in jail and you get out, and the other one, you don't ever quite make it to jail. Um, but her, the terms of her parole was that she was not allowed to be a caregiver mm -hmm. or in any sort of position like that, specifically because she's not a caregiver, as she's extensively proven, she's a murderer. The big or, well, I guess a thief. She's not a murderer yet that we know yes. of. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the big issue with this is it's the 80s, and record-keeping isn't great. No. And she has been married four times thus far. And is notorious for creating new identities. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, back then, even nowadays, but back then, getting married four times was basically four new identities. Yeah. Yeah, she got to wipe the slate clean every time. Because she can assume any one of those identities. I mean, she used Puente, which is, you know, basically what we're calling her today, even though her, her real maiden name's Gray. Mm -hmm. She used Puente for 20 more years after, you know? And so they would come and they'd see, like, oh, well, you're running this halfway house. And they'd look her up, and if depending on what name they would, or she would give them, her record wouldn't show up. Her record of being on parole and told you can't be a caregiver wouldn't show up. Yeah. So they wouldn't bat an eye. They'd be yeah. like, "All right, well, have a good one." Yeah. If if you're like, how is this apps like? How is this possible? How could they know? And the ah, the truth is, they didn't really know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about how police work works now. It wasn't any easier in the '80s, and yeah, they didn't have big computer systems. So like, <laughs> who knows who that lady is? I don't know. I'm sure I've told the joke before, uh, but one of my favorite things is before forensics became a big thing, you'd have police officers go, detective, there's a big pile of blood over here. And he'd go, gross, clean, clean it, it up. up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, suspicion towards Dorothea first arose when neighbors noticed uh, odd activities of a man that lived at her house known only by the name of Chief, um, who she said he, she adopted him and hired him to do maintenance around the house. Well, she had him dig uh, dig out the basement, and he would cart soil and rubbish away in wheelbarrows, and he laid down a concrete floor in the basement, which was weird. But he then took a garage apart in the backyard, dug it all up, and laid another concrete slab there as well. And soon after he finished that, no one ever saw him again. Ooh. So it was like he came in, did these two big projects, and then left, and no one really knew about him which is weird for someone you claim to have adopted. Yeah, it would be like, <laughs> I mean, you're my son, and it would be like if you just disappeared, and I was like, I don't know, he went to Mexico. What do you want me to tell you? <laughs> I just start or stop showing up to the bar, and everyone's like, have you seen Caleb? And you're like, yeah. Um, no, he was done with his stuff. Yeah, yeah. He, was, <laughs> he finished his work. He clocked out. What do you want me to tell you? So this brings us to November 11th of 1988, where police start inquiring uh, about a disappearance of a guy that lived there Named uh, Alberto Montoya. Uh, everyone everybody called, called him Bert. Bert. Yep. Yeah, good old Bert. Uh, he was a he was a de developmentally disabled man. He had uh, severe schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah, and he was one of those. And he developed it young. He yes. developed it in his teens. And he was one of those tough cases. And he had a social worker that worked very close with him. Um, Her name was Judy, and she kept close tabs on him because. He was living at a, a detox facility or a rehab facility. I'm, I'm going to interject just a tiny mm -hmm. bit here because I grew up in a house uh, with this sort of stuff. What I will say is this entire story. Now, Dorothea is a predator. Well, if you believe that she is, she is, right? Kind of either way because she stole from people. She did stuff like that. Whether she killed anybody, she's a predator. Yeah. 
But she's a predator, and she is preying on these people who need assistance more than anything. And it's soul-crushing to me to talk about this stuff sometimes because this could happen to anybody in my family. It could happen to, you know, like... We have a lot of mental illness in our family. We have a lot of substance abuse, and we don't have any money. And all of those things mean that anybody that I know and love could easily end up in this situation as well. And that shouldn't be what it takes to get you to care about it. Oh, no. But, you know, this woman just does not give a shit. She preys on the absolute it, – it's like a, uh, a guy who kills homeless people. You know, it's a power thing in the most pathetic way. You take absolutely powerless people – and then you fuck them over, and it makes you feel strong. Yeah. And that's dark. Uh, a mutual friend of ours who's a, a fellow Kentucky boy told me not too long ago uh, that he didn't want to beat you up in a fight because there's no glory in beating a guy with a mullet. Mm -hmm. And to me, that feels exactly the same as this. It's like, yeah, you could fucking, you definitely can drug and murder, like, people who have a bunch of mental issues. But what the fuck kind of person are you? Yeah. And it's so unethical, so disgusting. There's, like, I forget. I think there should be ethics to murder. If you're going to be a serial killer, you know, like, Gacy's the same way. If you're going to be a serial killer, like at least Zodiac gave people a chance to run. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know. I just, I know what I just said is dark, but that's so disgusting. Don't, mm -hmm. it's like killing, killing these guys to me is no different than killing children. Yeah. You're doing the exact same thing. You're preying on people who don't have the ability to fight back against you and who are purely innocent and kind people. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, Alberto or Bert was living there for quite a while. And then one day. He just kind of up and disappeared. Like, well, yeah, like everybody else, yeah. Bert goes missing. And the difference with Bert is Bert had a social worker. And mm -hmm. while there had been a number of social workers that had dealt with Dorothea, Judy, his social worker, was an especially passionate one. And, you know, it's very common for social workers to follow up on cases, to call back. Sometimes they do visits when they're kids and stuff. But to call back and to see how things are going. And she called one night and was told uh, that he was in Mexico. Yep. And there had been, he was there with a friend, and there had been a fiesta. These guys live in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. They definitely do not leave the country. None of them have passports. And I know this was the 90s, and you didn't necessarily have one, but I just want to emphasize that there's a level of uh, disbelief that should come across with the news that they were having a fiesta. That's yep. And she used that type of excuse language a lot. She was very common. It was very common for her to be like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so's on a trip or so-and-so's not here right now or they're not. And she kept following up. And eventually she went to go visit to see what was going on. She spoke to another man who lived there who ended up being a key witness in this case, a guy by the name of John Sharp. Mm -hmm. uh, and while he was there, she asked if there was anything going on. She asked what had happened. And he said, I don't know. She said, do you, you know, do you think anything's going on? I don't know. It's a weird place. And then she got a call from another guy by the name of, I think his name is Don Anderson, but mm -hmm. Don called her, and Don was like, hey, listen, something's going on at that house. Yep. And he specifically said a phrase that I absolutely love, and he said to the social worker, that old lady's digging a lot of holes. And that got Judy's attention big time. It also made both of us think of holes. Yeah. You know, it just makes me think Grandpa, of... Grandpa, my arms are tired. Dude. Well, that's too damn bad. <laughs> Dorothea's out there with Bert, and he's like, Dorothea, my arms are too tired. And she's like, well, that's just too damn bad. Now give me your social security check. So this piques suspicion, of course, and uh, a... I mean, could you imagine yeah. being like, hey, is anything going on down there? And the response is, they're digging a lot of holes. I'm sorry, what? So it's now two and a half months since anyone has seen Bert. And 
And again, not a person who goes, like I have some friends that I might not see for a few months. Totally makes sense. This dude you would see, if as long as he's okay, you'd see him every other day. Yeah. Yeah. So this uh, prompts investigators to do what they do best, investigate. Yes. Um, well, they don't do it best. But well, yeah, they job. do it. Yeah. Uh, and so they're they're getting ready to go investigate, and, and uh, the social worker's like, hey, you should bring shovels with you. And they're like, what do you mean? And she's like, I heard that. She's been digging a bunch of holes, the whole garden, all the soil is disturbed, like, you should bring shovels with you. So they go, and, and they get there, and they're like, hey, we're doing a wellness check on Bert. She's like, oh, well, you guys just missed him, he's not here right now. Uh, I was out of town Thursday and Friday, but John just saw him Saturday, and they're like, okay, well, do you mind if we look around? So they start looking around. Well, wait, before they started to look around, she said something very creepy and very incriminating. And that's the officer that's speaking to her, the guy who had to deal with her this entire time. He's talking to her. I believe it was Officer Cabrera. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to her, and he's the detective on the case, and he gets over there, and she goes, Officer, I'm in violation of my parole. And he goes, What? Yeah, I'm going to need to look around. And that's when he started looking around. So he starts looking around and noticing this is very much just a halfway house. There's multiple beds in, in multiple rooms. Uh, and he notices uh, cracked open blue pills, like blue pill casings everywhere. And he looks into it and she has a prescription. What's for, the prescription for? For diazepam. And diazepam is a tranquilizer. It's like two steps below ketamine. I've done it a few times. Uh, it makes your shoulders feel very light. Uh, but, yeah, and it's a, it is a, um, a stupefying drug, as the police would call it, but it's a deliriant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what it does is it uh, – we both experience sleep paralysis. It's sort of like that. That's why I joke when people take a lot of ketamine because when you take a lot of ketamine, a K-hole is like you can't fucking move. You're just like – and that's like salvia to me. Yeah. It sounds like the worst fucking thing. I'm, I'm a pro-motion drug guy. Let's do some <laughs> mushrooms. Let's move. So they notice that they're going around, uh, and John Sharp is like, "Hey, um, can I can I talk to you guys for a second? And they're like, "Yeah," and he hands them an envelope, like just like junk mail envelope, and written on the top of the envelope, it just says, "She wants me to lie to you." Mm-hmm. So they're like, "All right, well, um, we're gonna leave. We're probably gonna need to question you guys at the station, but before we leave." Can we dig in your yard? And she's like, what for? And he goes, well, uh, we just... Judy's really on our ass about Bert. Yeah. She, she, they're like, social worker just brought it up to us. We want to make sure that we tell her that we were super thorough. You shouldn't have anything to worry about. And she's like, yeah, you're right. I have nothing to worry about. You can dig in my yard. So they start digging. And they get about two and a half feet down when... Uh, the, the main investigator on the case pulls what he says to be a big piece of beef jerky yeah, out of the ground. Well, leather. He described it like leather. He thought he was pulling up pieces of leather, so he's like, oh, fuck, this is clothing. I wonder if mm-hmm. this is clothing. So he kept digging and kept digging, and then eventually, you guys know what the fuck's going to happen. He <laughs> hits something hard, and he starts yanking on it like it's Excalibur in the stone, and he pops it out, and what does the stick have on the end of it? But a ball, because it's a femur bone. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it was a body. So your immediate thought is, oh, shit. So they turned around and arrested that lady. Incorrect. Nope. She turned around and went, oh, this makes me very uncomfortable. Do you mind if I leave? And they said, yes. So They said, yes, go ahead. They they end up bringing everyone into the station. 
of course, no one's a suspect now. They just found a single body, and they're looking at it, and it's fairly old. That leather that he was pulling up was flesh. Yeah, that was the skin. That was uh, the person's skin. It's very old. So they start they start interrogating uh, Dorothea and John and everyone else that lives there. They get to Dorothea, and they're like, do you know what that body was? And she's like, I have no clue who that is, how it got there. You guys can see the age of it. Uh, they're like, well, we think it might be Bert. And she's like, well, you say that Bert's only been missing for two and a half months. We all clearly saw that that body has been there for longer than two and a half months. Like, you'll see that I have nothing to do with this. And right now, for some reason, it's because of her calm, nice old lady appearance. They do not suspect her. It's crazy. The interrogation, which we can't show because we'd get copyrighted, but uh, and part 20 viewers would be very upset but in the interrogation i love you guys by the way uh in the interrogation she cabrera's like you can tell how frustrated he is he wants to just crawl over the table and hit her because they (laughs) looked all around her house and they found like white powdered lye and plastic wrap and a body in the yard and like all the shit that clearly indicates that this woman is a murderer and he's like so do you know why he was like do you have any purpose for white powdered lye and she goes no he goes well, then why did we find a bunch of it in your house? And why is it covered in, why is there a hole where there's a body, which was only two and a half feet down? He's like, why is there a body in your backyard that's two and a half feet down and it's covered in lye? And she's like, well, I don't know. I don't know how that got there. And you and I during Discovery were laughing at that because that to me feels like exactly what you do in middle school when you get caught with like an eighth in your pocket. You're like, I don't know how that could have gotten there. I don't know, man. If somebody must have put it there. Like even the airport makes it a rule that you can't, not have your bag specifically just so you can't claim that you didn't know what was in your bag. That's the only reason they do that shit. Yeah. Nobody's ever snuck a bomb in somebody's bag. It's just like that. Now if somebody's going to watch, I'm going to eat my fucking words. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's a, they do it specifically to make you accountable. Yeah. Yeah, it just feels the same. So uh, they then go to uh, John Sharp. They interrogate him, and they're like, hey, man, what's going on? He's like, uh, she wants me to lie to you guys. She wants me to tell you that she was gone Friday or uh, Thursday and Friday, and that I saw Bert on Saturday. But to be honest with you, I haven't seen Bert in like three months, and I'm pretty sure she killed him. Yeah, he was like, I don't know what happened to Bert, but something's up. And everybody who lived there, like the other guy who called in, Don, he specifically called in to be like, hey, you need to come take a look at this. So those dudes live there. They understand that something's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the body that they first uncovered uh, was Leona Carpenter. She was 78 years old, and she lived at the house. Well, after they found that, they're like, "Hey, let's um continue to dig." And they found seven other bodies. Woo! So seven bodies total. So on August 18th of 1982, uh Puente was convicted. Um this is goes back to oh, could she have actually killed these people? This is a story that goes back in time a little bit to go, oh, she probably fucking killed these people. Yeah, because, you know, you listen to all this stuff and you, okay, so there are these people in her backyard. They take her to trial. The jury was pretty soft on her, to be honest. They only, she had, you know, I think there were nine total charges, seven total bodies. She only went away for three of the murders. And by the way, not Bert. She didn't get arrested for Bert's murder, which is crazy because that's what started it. And they did find Bert's body in the backyard. Mm-hmm. 
It's just that the jury was so empathetic to this woman playing this little old lady card that she legitimately just conned him into getting off, just like she had conned through her entire fucking life. She, this woman has made a, an entire life out of faking it until she makes it. The problem is the th- only place she seems to make it to is jail. It's like a season of Trailer Park Boys. Yeah. Yeah, she's always got a big plan, and it always puts her in jail at the end. Uh, but, yeah, so she ends up going to jail, which is fucking nuts. But she wasn't there for all that long. Uh, and you think, well, okay, did she really murder those people? Or was she set up? Was this some sort of a, she would be a, a decent patsy? Like, she has a number of, of foes from her past, right? Like, she's got all of these people. It's from her prostitution days, from uh, her scamming days, all these dudes that she's drugged and scammed because it's not like she murdered them. Any one of these people could want to put her away and yeah. cause her trouble. So I think that's enough doubt. The Wasn't the, the jury was 11 to 1, right? Yes. Just one person just refused to give her any more than those three murder charges. Yeah, and I'll, I'll talk about the, the actual trial uh, here in a little okay, bit. Okay, sorry, sorry. No, I'm but getting ahead. This is, this is the smoking gun to us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good old Everson Gilmouth. So... Uh, on August 18th, 1982, she was convicted for three theft charges and sentenced to five years in prison, where she began corresponding with Everson Gilmouth, uh, a 77-year-old retiree from Oregon. And they became pen pals, and it got to be a little bit more than just pen pals. And she got released three years after a five-year sentence in 1985, where he was met her outside as she got released, driving a red 1980 Ford pickup. How romantic. Uh, Their relationship developed quickly, and the couple was making uh, wedding plans until November of 1985, Fuente hired a man named uh, Ismael Flores to install some wood paneling in her her apartment. And for his labor and $800, uh, she gave him the red Ford pickup truck. Uh, She was like, hey, it belongs to my boyfriend. He's in L.A. right now. He doesn't need the truck anymore. You can have it. Uh, (laughs) But could you also do me a favor? And he's like, yeah, what's up? She said, can you build me a six by three by two foot box? I need it to store, quote, books and other items. Hey, can you build me a book coffin? Um, She then asked him to transport the filled sealed box to a storage depot. And he was like, yeah, I can do that. And, And she helped him. And as they're driving down Garden Highway in Sutter County, uh, they are driving alongside this riverbank. And she's like, oh, well. It actually just filled the box with junk. We can just dump it in this riverbank. So they do. <laughs> they just dump this box. You know Flores knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Well, she intentionally kept people around, too. Uh, when you've gone to jail or you've had to make questionable decisions, it makes it a lot easier to make more of them in your life because you can justify them because you've done it before. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's how they train soldiers to kill people, too. It's the same idea. It's like, well, I've had to do this. I've had to make a questionable decision or I've had to work for somebody where I don't ask any questions. It's going to be easy to not ask this little old lady any questions. So a year goes by. It's January 1st, 1986, and a fisherman spotted the suspicious-looking coffin-like box near the river and called the police. Well, they get there and they open the box and they find this terribly, terribly, badly decomposed body and it's just entirely unidentifiable. They can tell that it was an elderly man, but that's the last thing they can tell from it. Meanwhile, she's still collecting Gilmel's pension and writing letters to his family being like, hey, he, he's got a, a Kidney condition. He's got yeah, a heart condition. His heart condition. Yeah. Uh, we're thinking about getting married. Can't wait to see you guys. Blah blah blah. For years after she killed him and put him in this box. 
So it takes three years for them to identify his body. Well, that's because three years later they realized. So the family reached out to the the dec- the detective was featured in one of the the news articles mm-hmm. and that led to a, a few families that felt like, Oh shit, I know that woman. And also somebody I know disappeared in a very questionable fashion. Do you think she had something to do with it? Um, and the, that was the first one, you know, yeah. Everson, they realized, Oh shit. She, and this is during the trial. She, they realized, Oh shit. She probably killed Everson Gilmouth too. Yeah. So she ends up taking that charge as well. So, uh, Quinte was charged with nine counts of murder. Um, the, the victims are her boyfriend, Everson Gilmouth, uh, and eight tenants who lived at the boarding house. So Ruth, uh, Leona, uh, Bert, Dorothy Miller, Benjamin Fink, James Gallup, Vera Faye Martin, and Betty Palmer. Um, according to investigators, they determined that most of her victims had been drugged until they overdosed, to which she would then wrap them in bed sheets and plastic lining before dragging them into open pits in the backyard and burying them. Do you think she started doing that because the... The theft charges she got arrested on were for drugging people, too. Mm -hmm. And when she was doing that, I talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but I didn't want to talk about it too much. She was was playing a nurse. She was pretending to be a nurse. Yes. And she was pretending to be like an extended care nurse. uh, And she would come into people's homes and give them a bunch of diazepam or codeine, and they would fall... They'd fall asleep or into, like, a paralysis, and then she'd rob them, yep. and they got caught. Do you think she started killing them because she didn't want to get caught stealing anymore? Probably. Because the majority of what she did was theft. It was just theft in such a like, um intimate fashion, mm-hmm. you know? Because she wasn't a scammer in the traditional sense, and she wasn't, like, robbing banks. But she was stealing from these guys, and I wonder if it just became impossible for her to run the scam without killing them. Probably. Uh, she, during the initial investigation, though... Uh, <laughs> Her getting caught is the funniest part of this. It is. It so is really funny. She wasn't immediately a suspect. These cops, yeah, at like even dur- like right up to her trial. I mean, even as we talked about, because she only took three of those nine charges. That she very fucking. If she didn't do it, who killed Bert? Yeah. Uh, if you agree that she kills, and that dude's there, like it just doesn't track with me. Anyway, the the idea that like I don't know. At no point did anybody take this woman as a serious threat, and I guess fucking bully to her for convincing everybody she wasn't one. But yeah, she wasn't taken seriously during the trial, leading up to the trial, not at all. Like, just not at all. People didn't take her seriously at all. So, she wasn't immediately a, sus- a suspect, and as they're continuously digging up bodies Dude, at her house... if you had house, a body in your backyard, <laughs> there would be no way for you not to be a suspect. I don't know how they got there, and they're yeah. like, yeah, mm. she doesn't know how they got there. She well, said she doesn't know. She's like, uh, am I under arrest? And he's like, no, we don't we don't have anything. You say you don't know how that body got there. We're still looking. You're not under arrest right now. And she's like, okay, well, can I go buy a cup of coffee? My nephew works at the hotel down the street. I'm going to go buy a cup of coffee uh, from him. And he's like, yeah, sure. And the lead investigator walks more than halfway to this hotel with her, sees her making her way to the hotel, sees her walk in. He's like, all right, and goes back to the investigation and after a while, someone's like, where's Dorothea? And he's like, oh, well, she went to the hotel to buy a cup of coffee. And he's like, okay. Well, the other investigator goes to the hotel, comes back, and is like, where'd you say she went? He's like, the hotel <laughs> to get coffee. And to be clear, you guys should know this because it just adds a layer to it. She's wearing, she's a little, not quite so old lady, but she looks like a little old lady. And she's wearing a bright red caftan yeah. and jacket. There's like... I guess it's not a caftan. It's like one of those old lady suits. It's yeah. like a skirt with the jacket. She looks like she's going to church. 
uh, communist church. But, like, she's a little walking red flag. How the fuck did you lose her? And he goes, fuck, she fled. <laughs> so <laughs> she drives to L.A. She yeah. gets all the way to L.A. She made it all the way to L.A. Well, while she's going to L.A., they realize that, okay, she probably fucking did this. Yeah. Let's put out an APB, put it on the news, make sure, hey, if you've seen this lady, uh, she fucking killed and buried a bunch of people in her backyard. Keep an eye out for her. Also, she's got a reputation of drugging dudes she meets at a bar. Well, cut to a bar in L.A. (laughs) (laughs) So she goes into this bar, and there's a guy sitting there, and she starts chatting with him, and she's like, hey, do you want to get out of here? He's like, yeah, um, let me use the bathroom first, though. Does not use the bathroom. He goes to the telephone, and he calls the news station, and he's like, hey, you know that uh, old lady that you guys are looking for and you say uh, has a reputation of meeting dudes at bars and drugging them and also murdering people? Oh, well, this old lady that looks just like mm-hmm. her uh, just hit at me. Uh, me, an old man at a bar, <laughs> and wants to go home with me. All right, yep, see these guys soon. Hangs it's, up. It's really fortunate he was at a bar uh, because in the 80s, there wouldn't have been another way to like immediately call that in. No. Yeah, I think we forget about that with emergencies now. You can like yank out your phone and be like, oh, I'm in trouble. But back then, it was like, ah, do I have two quarters? <laughs> Is there a phone somewhere near? But at a bar, a lot of, I don't know, maybe people don't know that. It was a, always a big running joke on The Simpsons, but that's because a lot of people used to use bars as like a payphone. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I so, know people who used to take calls at bars. <laughs> I would be pissed, dude. If somebody called for you at the bar, I'd be like, no, absolutely not. He even works here and no. Um, she, the, the local PD comes up, arrests her, and uh, they, the whole time they're like, I still don't think this is right. So uh, they get a change of venue motion uh, filed by her lawyers, Kevin Climo and Peter Vlaten III, uh, and a judge transfers her trial to Monterey County. The trial begins on October 1992 and ends a year later. It's a long trial. Uh, the prosecutor, John O'Mara, who was the homicide supervisor in the Sacramento County District's Attorney Office, it presided over the case, and he called over 130 witnesses to the stand during the case. Dude, that's crazy. He argued to the jury that Puente had used sleeping pills to put her tenants to sleep and then suffocated them and hired convicts to dig holes in her yard. And Climo concluded in his uh, closing argument, this is so fucking funny, All every part of her getting arrested and her trial on her side, on, on the prosecution side, it's like, this woman is a monster. And on her side, they're like, it's a little old lady. And their defense was interesting because their defense was like, all of those guys moved in there of their own volition. The mm-hmm. trade of checks was fair. They all died uh, it's such a weird excuse to make, but we'll get there in a second. They all died of natural causes, um, and she buried them in the yard because she couldn't call the cops to do something about it because she was on uh, parole, and if she did, they would come, and she'd get in trouble. Ma'am, that guy wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. You should be in trouble. Yeah. That's such a weird defense to be like, well, I was doing the thing I was explicitly told not to, which is why I, I would have gotten in trouble. Ma'am, ma'am, you're already in trouble. You're, yeah. I don't, <laughs> so her lawyer, Climo, uh, concludes his closing argument by showing a Rorschach test. Just holding a Rorschach test, points to it and says, keep in mind, Things aren't always as they seem, and sits down. I want that to be the Donald Duck, Donald Trump one. Not everything is what you see. You think, these guys think this lady's a monster. We think she's a nice old lady. Holds up a picture. Duck, 
Rabbit. Doug. <laughs> rabbit. <laughs> Things aren't always what they seem. Anyways, I'll be at the casino if you guys need... No, we so, need to do closing arguments for this podcast instead of a conclusion. Uh, the jury deliberated for over a month and found her guilty for only three of the murders. And like we said, they were deadlocked 11 to 1 for conviction on all, uh, all nine. And the lone holdout finally agreed to conviction of two uh, first-degree murder counts, including special circumstances. That's crazy. And one second-degree murder count. Which is not what this was. No, not at all. These were all first-degree murders. Yes, 100%. She knew exactly what she was doing. So uh, the penalty phase of the prosecution um, was highlighted by the prior convictions introduced by O'Mara. Uh, they're like, hey, she clearly has a reputation. She's been convicted multiple times of drugging people. She clearly killed these people. And they're like, okay, yeah, she deserves life in prison. <laughs> uh, it's so wild to me, though, still. That one holdout must have been a real pain in the ass. Like, you know, like, what kind of weird grandma gilf fetish do you have to have to be like, listen, I know she very clearly murdered all these disadvantaged men, but just look at her. She's so sweet. Uh, Omer's closing argument uh, was really impactful, and I'll read what he said. He says, does anyone become responsible for their conduct in this world? These people were human beings. They had a right to live. They did not have a lot of possessions. No houses, no cars, only their social security checks and their lives. She took them both. Yep. Death is the only appropriate penalty. Yeah, man. She took, she stole, like, it's weird. We were joking about it earlier, but it's like the anti-Robin Hood, you know, yeah. because a lot of the money that she stole, too. We were talking earlier about how she was considered to be, like, a great local philanthropist, especially in, like, the uh, Latina and Latino communities. But, like, it's because the money she was giving to those communities, she was stealing from dudes she was killing. Yeah. So, like, she'd the, give the money to politicians, she'd give them to scholarships. And, like, so she was robbing from the poor to give to the rich. Yeah. It's you're the complete fucking opposite, lady. You're it, the worst. It's it's a weird thing. These guys got fucking nothing. They were dealt a shitty hand. There's something chemically wrong with them. And rather than meeting them with mercy and understanding, you think that there's something to be gained from tricking them. Listen. I love playing pranks. I love tricking people. But it's like the mullet thing. Yeah. There's no glory in tricking a dumb or disadvantaged person. Yeah. You didn't, you're not strong. You're not capable. You're a fucking loser who picks on people who don't deserve it. And it's a weird Robin Hood sense, too, of she stole from the poor to give to the rich so the rich could give less back to the poor. Yeah, absolutely. Because if it was scholarships and, and work programs and, like, community resource and stuff like that, I don't know, maybe um, just help the people to begin with. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. You know, it's uh, like growing up really poor, you, it's really easy to feel like you got to work really hard and you have to do all the shit to impress. I know that I felt that way growing up. But you have to reach, You also, it's healthy to reach a point where you realize that your life is your own direction and that what a lot of people are trying to achieve is naive. Yeah. You know, you can either live an unfulfilled life chasing something you'll never have or you can be very happy with what you have. And I think, you know, this woman just, I don't, she was chasing a life she never had. Yeah. And she did it by destroying other people's. So she gets incarcerated in the Central California Women's Facility in uh, Chauchia, California. And for the rest of her life, she maintained her innocence, insisting that all of her boarders had died of natural causes. Yeah. Which She's is like, I didn't do it. I didn't kill any of them. Yeah, I did. I did bury their bodies, but it's and just because I, did I didn't want to checks. Cut. I did cash their checks, but I didn't murder them. I robbed from them and buried them without telling anybody because I didn't want to get in trouble for murdering them. <laughs> um, she ends up dying um, in prison 
uh, on March 27th, 2011, from Natural Causes. Uh, well, or was it? <laughs> <laughs> um, some say her social security <laughs> checks are cash to this day. We're no. going to put her social security number on the screen right now. She was only 82 years old when she died. Only 82, Bubba. 82 is old. Yeah, but when you're having people call you grandma in the 70s. I know, I know. She that was... means she was 42 years old <laughs> in the 70s. I know, I know. She or was... 50 in the 80s. I can keep going. My math is pretty strong. You know what's wild is Judy, the um, the woman who really helped get her caught, that social worker for Bert, uh, she's the same age, and she was like, or like close to, and she was pretty furious when she found out how old she actually was. Yeah. She was like, bullshit, that's how old I am. She's like, uh, I'd be insulted to it. Like, I'm not a fucking grandma. <laughs> uh, like current day, she's in her like late sixties, early seventies. And she's like, yeah, she was having people call her grandma and acting like a 90 year old woman when she was the age I am right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what do you think? Do you think she yeah, killed her? Dude. I mean, I think so. I think so. I could see, listen, I understand why maybe somebody in the comments, feel free to leave it, might think that she didn't do it um, and that there could be a larger conspiracy. And, hey, we're a conspiracy show. We're conspiracy boys. We love a good conspiracy. But this one doesn't feel – this feels a lot like um, Patty Moriarty, yeah. you know? Like this old lady very cl- – man, we do have a preoccupation with murder and grandmas, don't we? We do. It's just uh, – well, we both really like our moms. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is very perplexing. It's like, but why, Mom? Why would you kill me? Um, but yeah, there's like a, it, to me, it feels a lot like Patty Moriarty and that like this pretty clearly happened. Anybody who was near it knows exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And there's just like a quality of privacy that will stop the truth from really, truly coming yeah. out. Yeah. Cause you know, that motherfucker rest in peace got turned into a meat pie in Larima and we both know it. Watch that episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what they say? If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, Abbott. (laughs) (laughs) That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Well, with that said, uh, leave your thoughts in the comments, guys. We love you. Let us know what you think. And it is riddle time. It is riddle time. Last week's riddle uh, was the rungs of a 10-foot ladder attached to the ship are one foot apart. If the water is rising. Did you know my arms are one foot long? Are you really? Yeah. About one arm long. Well, you know what's funny is your forearms. This well, it's riddle time. So here's facts as well. These should be allowed here. Uh, your feet are the same size. The length of your feet is the same as the length of the distance from your wrist to your elbow. I didn't know that. My feet are a foot long. Nice. Yeah, it's I, actually super fucking convenient. Yeah, because measuring rooms is oh, it's a great. Yeah, anytime I'm building something and I need to like build a ten foot bar, it's really easy to just like rough exaggerate or exaggerate it. Listen to me, estimate it. You just put your foot down on a piece of board and you cut it. <laughs> You're like, listen, my foot was 12 inches. And now it's about 11 and three quarters. <laughs> Shaved no, a little this up the is top. like 11 and three quarters. Right? About, that's about six inches. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> I about. I was told this is about <laughs> 10 inches. So the rungs of a 10-foot ladder attached to a ship are one foot apart. If the water is rising at a rate of one, put, uh, one, one <laughs> foot an hour, how long will it take until the water covers the entire ladder? Never. It's a boat. It's it a floats. Boat. So as the water rises, the boat rises. It, it's equidistant. Um, Aquadistant. Aqua. <laughs> this week's riddle. I reach for the sky, but I clutch to the ground. Sometimes I leave, but I'm always around. Ooh, what am I? That's a good one. I, uh, I have an idea, but I am going to resist shouting it out because I have a tendency of doing that. 
Uh, let us know what you think the answer to the riddle is in the uh, in the comments as well. Throw it in there with your theory about Dorothea Puente, murderous Dorothy, the queen, or what, what did I call her? Oh, the welfare queen? That's the welfare what I called the queen. episode, yeah, because, I mean, that's what she is, right? Like, I mean, I mean... It's like her and that wrestler from Glow. Those are the two. Those are the two I can think of. Well, we love you guys very much. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back same acid time, same acid channel next week. Hopefully, you like this one. We love you very much, Caleb. Do you have anything to add before we go? I don't. <laughs>